0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. If you've spent any time on social media recently, you may have noticed the explosion in video performances of spoken word poetry. On this episode, poet, scholar, and Dartmouth College professor Joshua Bennett joins Commonweal's own Claudia Avila-Cosnahan to discuss his new book, Spoken Word, A Cultural History, which traces the art form's development from its roots in Black education and the Black arts movement, to the New and Poets Cafe on New York's Lower East Side, to the growth of the SLAM movement pioneered in Chicago. A prominent spoken word champion himself, Bennett also discusses how performing poetry has shaped his own life, and how spoken word contributes to the ongoing work of community building and liberation. Also on this episode, a brief conversation between Special Projects Editor Miles Doyle with Editor-at-Large Molly Wilson O'Reilly, who talks about Claire Hutchett Bishop. She was a popular children's book author in the mid-20th century, a prominent and outspoken opponent of anti-Semitism, and Commonweal's own children's book editor for many years. Those conversations are coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Claudia, it's good to see you today.
1: Good to see you too, Dominic.
0: And I should just clear things up for people who are listening. Claudia and I are actually seeing each other on Zoom. Claudia, you're in Los Angeles, which is where you live.
1: Yes, the best city.
0: <laughs> uh, we can uh, dispute this off air, but maybe we can talk a little <laughs> bit about Joshua Bennett first. How? What made you interested in speaking with Joshua Bennett?
1: Well, you know, one of the first things I did after... The pandemic allowed us to go out into the world again was attend one of the uh, spoken word performances out here in Los Angeles. And so there's already been a kind of interest on my end. So when I heard of the opportunity to be able to speak to Joshua Bennett, I I was really excited. As a poet and Grand Slam champion, he's performed at venues such as the Sundance Film Festival, the NAACP Image Awards, and in President Obama's evening of poetry and music at the White House. His new book, Spoken Word, A Cultural History, is his first narrative nonfiction. Joshua Bennett's a writer, poet, Grand Slam champion, and professor, so his personal story is interwoven. He's affected by his history and is part of it. It's precisely that personal engagement with the historical that invites readers to consider the transformative and, as he puts it, liberating power of spoken word. We talked about all of this and his personal experience with the spiritual, prophetic aspects of performance poetry.
0: Great. Well, this sounds uh, excellent, Claudia. Thanks for being here, and let's take a listen to the conversation.
1: Joshua, thank you for joining us.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Claudia, for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So I'd like to just get right into it. When I read your book, it felt like it was really a series of origin stories, including your own each connected or influenced by the previous histories told. I'd like to take us first to a place you took us very early on in your book, and that's Miguel Algarín's living room. Can you describe the significance of Miguel Algarín and his living room to spoken word?
2: Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, I met Miguel as a teenager, but I didn't really understand who or what he was, who he had been for decades and what he had meant to my beloved tradition. So I met him as an audience member at the New Eureka Poets Cafe, which I attended for the first time as a 17-year-old boy and went back to several times throughout college and graduate school. Whenever I was on break from school, I would try to go back by the New Yo and participate in a slam or see one of my friends perform. Like one of my good friends, Carvin's Lasant, was the New Eureka Grand Slam champion at one point. So, I would find myself in the New Eurecan from time to time. And I knew Miguel had helped start it, but I certainly didn't know that he'd done so in his living room. These were not really even the kind of raucous affairs that I'd first imagined. These were kind of business like, almost it seemed like people would show up and stay. So, quite late at night, writing and rehearsing new work. And part of the impetus, even for buying a building for the New Eurecan Poets Cafe, was that people were staying too late. Right. And that Miguel had a day job as a professor, both at Brooklyn College and at Rutgers, where he would help start the Puerto Rican studies program, in addition to being a fairly sought after Shakespearean studies scholar. And so that's what Miguel was up to in the 70s, curating space for his friends who came from all across the world. Right? I mean, Miguel Pinero, as soon as he got out from a bid in, in Sing Sing, came to Miguel Algarin's living room. Their friendship is one of the sort of core stories of the book. Part of the great discovery of Miguel's story was that I felt these moments of overlap that I couldn't have fathomed in advance. You know, that he was this PhD incompetent who also in some ways was just trying to create space for a tradition he'd loved since he was a young boy. His mother was also a a poet, right? He comes from a a kind of literary family, but not in the way I think that story has traditionally been told in American letters. And it seems to me that he's just trying to find bigger and bigger stages so that all of his friends and family can fit. And that's an impulse that I've felt my entire life, though I've never started anything necessarily on the scale of the New York and Poets Cafe.
1: When I was reading your book, there was like a sense of what was happening in the 60s and 70s, and describing the salon and describing Miguel Algarin. There's a kind of vibration. It almost felt like I could. Feel the way in which you might have at moments even romanticized that time. It seems to me like spoken word in the way that you've described it in the book has a spirituality, has a praxis. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Part of why you get together to, to sing the beauty of your interior world is because the material world has its myriad brutalities that you can't necessarily always physically escape, right? Because your people are there, right? The people you love are there. The pizza spot that you love is there. Your church is there, right? Your little cousin is there, right? The streets are there. And so that that's the practice for me. You know, it always has been. It's been at the core of it. So the first poetry slam I ever attend is at the Yonkers Public Library. Like it's in my hometown. Spoken word, like hip hop in a way, is often about representing where you're from. So the romance of the book is also about what it means to be elected to tell the story of your hometown, of the place you love. Caroline Rothstein, right, one of my dear friends, she tells the story of a period in time in the 2000s where people are literally moving to New York City to slam for the new region for the opportunity to represent that particular slice of New York life. And I guess I've just, I've been taken with that, right? I'm taken with how people, you know, to riff on Archie Lord, how people survive what they were never meant to survive. Spoken word is a part of that story, right? It's a part of how people who were alive as the Bronx was burning, as an opioid addiction like swept over their neighborhood and through their family, people who were surviving police brutality and anti-black racism, right, And, and US imperialism, they turned to this art form not just to find a more robust lexicon for their individual experience, but to find a collective, right? A space where they could gather together and in my tradition, that, that's a big deal, right? It's so where, you know, two or more are gathered right? in the space, like actually in the Black church tradition, I was raised in for the, the spirit to fall, right? There needs to be a kind of collective presence. There needs to be music. I don't know, that's also part of how I, I learned to love spoken word. It was through music and it was through collectivity. That was part and parcel of the romance. That was part of the adventure. It was that you got to travel with this ensemble and you all could literally make the world something else. Uh, that's been my trajectory, was that through touring with my friends, that's how I was able to feed myself. Work, study, in college wasn't doing it. It was the gigs on the road and the poems that I wrote in my college dorm with my college friends. I mean, that's what helped change the texture of my life in that moment. And so I'm also trying to reflect that dynamic in
3: the book.
1: I really love what you say about the importance of place because I also get the sense that it's connected to the body. You make it a point in your book to talk about how spoken word is, it requires the body. And then the spoken word speaks to the experience of the body in a place and a certain time. Could you speak to that a little bit? What is so important about embodiment in both in the history that you've told about spoken word, but also in your own experience
2: of performing. The poem starts before you step on stage. That was always the way I was trained. Even the way you dress, but certainly the way you comport yourself, the way you carry yourself, the way you collect yourself before the poem, that is all a part of the performance and you should think about it, not so that it's forced or anything like that, right? But literally it's just so you, you have a practice in place and you can get reps at it, right? To do whatever you need to do to give the most evocative, but also true performance of the material, right? So for years, I would quite literally visualize the people who were in the poem I was about to recite, right? I would imagine their faces, and then I would go into the poem, right? I will close my eyes, I would open them, and then I would dive in, and the thing happens. It's a regular practice of being vulnerable in front of strangers. And at least for me, again, because there are sort of memoristic elements to this book, that was exceedingly important. I've really struggled with that for a very long time. The idea that I could put myself on the line, right, in front of people and not disintegrate. I quite literally, I think this was a sense I had as a younger person, but I was just going to explode. I would spontaneously combust <laughs> if I got up there and embarrassed myself, that my life would be over. And thankfully that didn't happen a, a ton. But there were times where I dropped poems, right? Times where I just got up there and went blank. That happened to me. I think quite literally one of the first times I performed in college, I went up and it was n- nothing. There was nothing up there. <laughs> and that was quite surreal. I'd already been to Brave New Voices. I would performed at the college talent show. I'd already been admitted into the Axolano Project, the big spoken word group on campus. But it was quite humbling because it was a reminder. that, oh yeah, Josh, you need to be practicing these poems hundreds of times so that it just flows out through muscle memory. So that's the other thing too, is especially for those of us that really do it, When you see these kind of elaborate performances on stage that still feel undeniably true, you're seeing a kind of living archive almost, right? You're seeing the thousands maybe of of hours that a person has put into this. And there's something quite beautiful about that to, to me as well. And the point isn't even really to become a poet. I talk about this in the book too. When I make the pitch to parents to get their kids involved in spoken word, or even just the public recitation of poetry broadly construed, something like Poetry Out Loud, I see it's really about just speaking with confidence and conviction and clarity in front of a room full of people you may or may not know. That's an important skill just to have in life. It's an important experience to have, I think, to come out on the other side of that breathing. There's nothing quite like that, I think, in the world.
1: Mm. Your very first poetry slam, you were a child. You were 11 years old. And... I'd like to invite you to read an excerpt from your book. And just to give a little bit of context, you state in the book that all the first poets that you ever heard were preachers, (laughs) but none were more influential to you than Dr. Millicent Hunter. And so, in this excerpt from your book, you describe your trips to North Philadelphia, to a North Philadelphia church, the Baptist Worship Center. So I'd like to invite you to invite us into that experience.
2: Yeah, sure. Sheesh, you're really taking me back thinking about this. My mother and I would drive for two hours on Sundays to hear Dr. Hunter speak. Just us two. A mother and her strange, untamable boy. A glove box full of gospel CDs and freshly printed map quest directions a pair of McDonald's breakfast sandwiches warming the console between the seats. What I remember most clearly about Dr. Hunter's sermons is the tempo, the precision of the pace, the rise and fall of the writing to match the ebb and flow of emotion in the crowd, people crying, dancing in place, almost immovable once the spirit caught hold of them. My sense, even then, was that Dr. Hunter was not just a masterful communicator all in her own, but a conduit a messenger through whom a power beyond our mortal eyes could enter the space. And the sermon, the epic poetry of that space, echoed forth from the pulpit, was the vehicle. The sermon was where language and divine power united. It was the instrument used by the prophet to take us higher. In those moments, my experience of the black church taught me what it would mean to write for the people, for an audience with dreams and needs and visions of the future, more expansive than I could easily imagine, but that I must nonetheless aim for if I was to be worthy of the gift I wasn't yet sure I had, but already aspired toward. The stakes of that writing were life and death, love and loss, eternity.
1: So it seems to me like you draw parallels between the New Yorkian and the many other spoken word gathering places. To the experience of gathering church, except that in these poetry performance spaces, the poet is both the congregant and the preacher. Yes. Can you elaborate on that experience, since you are both a congregant and a preacher when you perform on stage?
2: Thank you for picking up on that. It's it's important to me that people also see that this is not just a story narrated by poets, but by audience members by onlookers. The story, for example, of someone like Carlos Andres Gomez right, is a story of someone who watched a movie <laughs> right, and then sat in the audience as a high school student and watched people perform. And that's how he came to love spoken word. And for me, it was much the same. right. So my first poetry slam was at 11 years old. But then eventually, I went to a Hurricane Katrina relief benefit in high school and, and saw teenage poets for the first time performing there. I saw poets like Elizabeth Acevedo. I saw Carlos Andres Gomez perform there. Aja Monet was the host of the Slam that night. Or not the Slam, sorry, the live showcase. Slam was not first for me. It was live shows that were first. Also in high school, I was taken by my art teacher to go see deaf poetry on Broadway, right? So I had, I had all of these really interesting kind of points of recognition that there was this, again, this sound out there, right? And that it can manifest in all sorts of ways, right? It could be a Broadway show, it could be a live showcase at a college. And then eventually, right, later in my senior year, I found that teenagers had their own poetry slam. My sense is that there's something about witnessing the thing that is singular. How powerful must that be? Not, that not only did we clap and cry and stand up, but we really went out and tried to do it, some of us. right? That like we, we count that, as you said earlier, as an origin story. right? All of the performance poets I know that I love, They can tell you the first time they saw spoken word performed. All of us. But I remember, Oh, actually, I do remember Marcus's poem, right? Marcus, who had the black durag, black sweatshirt. I mean, his poem was about Yonkers, which is part of why it stuck. But there was something, too, about just the way he was saying those words. They mattered so much to him. I just thought, how is it possible that this performance means this much to this much older man who's on stage? And in that way, this guy who I never saw again, he really... Created a model for me. But I think a number of poets you ask about their origin story as an audience member, they'll tell you the same thing, right? That there was just one performance that they saw that night that just something clicked in them. And they thought, this is one of the most beautiful moments of my life. And I have to try to recreate it myself. I have to try to embody or internalize this thing and carry it elsewhere. And there's nothing quite like that. There's nothing quite like having that moment. I may mean, also wanted to be a preacher. I was in training to become a minister when I was in graduate school, and then I had a faith crisis while I was at Princeton and decided not to do it. My father was a deacon, and he would just pray so beautifully. My mother would say this thing. She would just say quickly that when she heard a beautiful sermon, she would say, that's my word for the week. And she would carry it around with her like a kind of armor. And I think I just always... I just thought that was incredible that you would carry around a word for the week. Richard Rorty writes about this too, about poetry. I mean, you can can carry poetry around in your head for a difficult moment. I've had legitimately tragic moments in my life where I had lines that came to me of other people's poems that for some strange reason, they were a comfort, right? Having these kind of ancient verses, they meant something to me in very difficult moments.
0: We'll have more of Claudia's conversation with Joshua Bennett in a moment.
1: Alan Konick, Executive Director of Commonweal. Thanks to listeners like you, we recently celebrated the release of our 100th podcast episode. Did you know we're also about to celebrate 100 years of continuous publication of our print magazine? Please consider supporting the work we do, hosting expansive, nuanced, and timely conversations across all our media. You can visit commonwealmagazine.org donate to make a one-time gift or, even better, become a monthly donor. Thanks! Now let's get back to the conversation. Marcus was the man that participated in that poetry slam when you were 11. And he said to you that you had heart. Heart,
2: yeah.
1: But I'd like to hear from you, especially considering the way you are talking about prayer and about the preachers that inspired you and the people of faith that inspired you. What did that mean to you? When he said that you had heart, because you said you never forgot that. But what does that mean? What did that mean for you then? And what does that mean for you now?
2: I think there are these unique kind of moments of black male tenderness that aren't often expressed in dominant cultural representations, even of blackness, even of black culture. So one of them is being an 11-year-old boy, right? And having, and I don't know how old Marcus was, It could have been 17, 18, early 20s. But having what seemed to me like this older, very refined black artist tell me that I had heart. its one of the highest compliments you can give somebody, right? Because what he's saying in that moment is, you're 11 years old. (laughs) The fact that you got up here at all and competed against adults, you showed great courage. right? And you stuck with it and you performed your heart out. That's a big deal, right? You weren't, even if you were afraid, you overcame. The point is not to not be afraid. At least the way I was raised. You're gonna be afraid in all sorts of scenarios. If you're sharp, you'll actually be afraid maybe a fair amount because <laughs> there's a lot going on, especially in South Yonkers, where and when I grew up to to be afraid of or to be wary of. It. So for him to tell me that I had heart, it meant that I overcame the fear of that moment, right? And I stepped into my gift and I operated in my gift. It was part of the astonishment for me seeing preachers too, especially if you don't feel like the congregation is especially lively that day. It it always just seemed to me it takes great courage to get up there. One, to operate within the idea that you have a kind of message from the divine to relay to all these people who are going through things you can't fathom. And they've perhaps come to you not just for a word of the week, not just for a passage to carry with them, but maybe to sustain them, to tell them that life is worth it. That's a major responsibility. Whether or not every preacher who gets up in front of a pulpit feels that, it always seemed to me, even as a very small boy, that was perhaps one of the greatest responsibilities I could imagine. That's what it meant to have heart. It's that you push through that fear. You push through the sense that you were outgunned, perhaps would be outclassed. It's like maybe, maybe this heart is something that I could tap into more often in this way. I can be up against what feel like insurmountable odds. I felt like I could get up there and everything would fall apart. The world would fall apart. And I think Marcus maybe even recognized that on my face and he encouraged me, which uh, which meant a great deal.
1: I always imagine when I'm watching a poet performing that there is a sense of relief at the end of the performance. But it's not because or only because the performance is complete, (laughs) but because something has happened to the poet in the process of sharing themselves because they share so much of themselves. They're sharing their experience, their emotion, their voice, and their body just in the performance. I feel like it's a real sacrificial kind of giving to the people who are present. You said that you went through a period in your life where you even thought that you'd be a minister. Do you believe that your calling to be a performer, a spoken word, has satisfied that calling? Because I think those callings, sometimes we don't know how to define them, but then we find that what we do ends up being the thing that we were actually looking for.
2: I wanted to be a preacher from the time I was four years old. So I wanted to be a preacher before I wanted to be anything else. It was preacher, paleontologist, and then professor came later. And I was like quite literally in training to become a minister in the AME Zion tradition. So I was in something called Timothy training at my home church in New York. And it was about a week or so, I think, before my trial sermon. And I wrote to the lead pastor at our church and said, I didn't think I could do it because I had a crisis of faith. So I was pretty close. It wasn't like this is something I thought about sometimes. Like I was dedicated to it. I was devoted to it. And I thought that's what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I thought I was maybe going to lead a church and maybe also be a professor (laughs) to go teach on the weekdays, teach. African-American poetry and environmental writing, and then on Sundays, to help lead worship and do the whole thing. And is it connected? People have told me over the years that it is. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm still learning why I'm on earth. I think when my son was born, it, it felt a bit more, it felt far more concrete than it had in the past. Because part of why I'm on Earth is to be his dad, and I really mean that. I don't mean just as a kind of a, like biological fact. Like I, I feel it every day that part of what I'm supposed to do is take care of this boy, and hopefully use everything that has come with my spoken word career to say something meaningful to and about his generation of of children all across the globe. They're entering a world that just has all sorts of. Not just like terrors lying in wait and unimaginable beauty too, but there's just a lot of responsibility, right? They're up against a lot and they're amazing. And just in being August's father, I think I've learned a great deal about calling, I imagine. And so I hope those things are connected. I hope that I'm giving people words for the week and for the month and for the year and for their lives. I hope that I'm encouraging people to tap into those moments of, transcendence is, is part of it, but also a kind of transcendence that is uniquely possible when people are gathered together. There's just something to that, that when I stopped going to church, I lost, that I just don't want to pretend that wasn't important or that it's not, that it's not meaningful. Like, getting together every Sunday with my family, with my friends, with my fellow congregants That was an absolutely essential part of my life for most of my time on this planet. I've had preachers throughout my life that changed my life, right? W. Darren Moore, Melissa Hunter, like these these people have changed my life. They helped shape my literary imagination. They certainly shaped the way I teach. I know that I'm tapping into those gesticulations and that pacing when I teach 100%. You can see that black preachers really shaped me in that moment. So I hope they're connected. I hope they're connected and that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I hope that I'm doing what I'm here to do and doing it well.
1: You describe this book as an act of historical reclamation. Yeah. And you dedicated it to for everyone and anyone trying to get free. And that dedication carried me through the reading of your book. and. We find ourselves in a time of rising book bans and bans on cultural studies, political rhetoric against critical race theory, all while we're struggling to in this like post pandemic moment to gather again. So how does the spirit of spoken words origin manifest in our current moment?
2: It's manifesting in in the current moment by, as far as I can tell, being ubiquitous. (laughs) you go on TikTok, on Instagram, the kids are keeping the tradition alive, right, in all sorts of ways. And, uh, you know, the individual World Poetry Slam still exists. The Women of the World Poetry Slam still exists. So I think also some of these kind of competitions are even coming back. But I'm regularly astonished by how normal spoken Word is and Poetry Slam is. I mean, I went to Harvard the other day to take out, I think, a DVD from the library, and it was. I think the DVD was Slam. Actually, I was taken out from the library, and the librarian said, oh, yeah, I did Poetry Slam in high school. It was just the most normal thing in the world. Like, now there are kids who just do Poetry Slam in high school. It's on their syllabus in high school. And so that's how it's alive. There are parents everywhere still helping their kids memorize poems that they're going to share in their houses of worship. Right, that they're going to share at school, that they'll share at the public library, that they'll share for Poetry Out Loud. These students reach out to me still. High school students will write to me. They say they they saw my YouTube video or they're getting ready for Poetry Out Loud or they want to know if I can come to their school because they have a spoken word club. So it's alive. And those young people are changing the world. It's not just that they're going to change the world. They are changing the world right now, not just through writing the poems, but through developing a kind of political consciousness an ensemble that comes with writing poems together, that comes with like reading the newspaper online, and say, all right, we're gonna write poems about this and this. Not just because it's topical, but because that's part of how inspiration works is you read. You read and you listen. And that's what I did when I was a teenage poet, and I was on teams. My coaches would make us read what is in the news right now, what is happening in the world. Our work needs to be responsive to the cultural moment. So I was one of the professors who helped write the AP African American Studies curriculum, right? And myself and another one of my colleagues, right, we both grew up reciting poetry that helped shape our political consciousness as children, right, growing up in church and in predominantly black schools, reciting what some would say is spoken word, right? But for us, it was we real cool. And it was 10 of us, anywhere from four to 10 years old, reciting these poems in public. Michael Harper calls it a continuum of consciousness, right? The sense that we're part of a cloud of witnesses, right, dead and living, and now we are actually in the moment of recitation, tying ourselves to those ancestors, okay? And that practice of memory is important, right? It's important spiritual practice, but it's also an important political practice in a cultural moment where everything is supposed to be immediate, where you're supposed to forget, right? We're supposed to say, oh, Jim Crow was so long ago, really? My dad integrated his high school. It's not that long ago. The Klan slashed his tires on his Firebird, his first car, he loves it, Right? But what he talks about, when he talks about high school, he talks about the Canterbury Tales and how he didn't want to read it, (laughs) right? He was still a teenage boy, lest we forget. So that's part of how it's still manifesting is that it's alive and well. It's important to practice courage in whatever is difficult for you. If writing is that for you, if making friends is that for you, if playing a sport is that for you, if learning to sew is that for you, really try to find occasions, even just small windows to do that thing. That is really for me, actually, at the core of this book. It's at the core of spoken word that a lot of different people did that over time. You know, that Miguel Algarín was a tried and true Shakespeare scholar, right? But he loved the spoken word and he loved the work his friends were doing and he committed his life to it. So that's what I hope my book does, that it reminds us that friendship is powerful. And it's part of the reason we do politics. One reason, is, as Barack and others have said, truth, to protect truth and beauty. But it's also to make friends and to keep our friends alive, to take care of our friends. But that's another reason we make art, and a spoken word is all about that.
1: So as we come to the end of our time together, could you share a poem that you believe embodies the spirit of your book?
2: Sure. So this is a poem that I love in part because it sings the beauty of uh, places we might be trained not to look. And not just not to look for beauty, but not look at it all. So this is a benediction. God bless the lightning bolt and my little brother's hair. God bless our neighborhood barber, the patience it takes to make a man you've just met beautiful. God bless every beautiful thing called monstrous since the dawn of a colonizer's time. God bless the arms of the mother on the Crosstown bus. The sterling silver cross at the crux of her collarbone, its shine barely visible beneath her nightshade navy, New York Yankees hoodie. God bless the baby boy kept precious in her embrace. His wail turning my entire row into an opera house. God bless the vulnerable ones. How they call us toward love and its infinite unthinkable cost. God bless the floss, the flash, the brash and bare-knuckle brawl of the South Bronx girls who raised my mother to grease knuckles, cut eyes, get fly as any fugitive dream on the lamb, on the run, from the law, as any and all of us are who dare to wake and walk in this skin. And you best believe God bless this skin, the shimmer and slick of it, the wherewithal to bear the rage of brother's sisters slain and still function each morning, still sit at a desk, Send an email, take an order, dream a world, some heaven, big enough for black life to flourish, to grow, God bless the no, my story is not for sale, the no, this body belongs to me and the earth alone, the sea. The thing about souls is they, by definition, cannot be owned, God. Bless the beloved flesh our refusal calls home, God. Bless the unkillable interior. Bless the uprising. Bless the rebellion. Bless the overflow. God bless everything that survives the fire. Thank you.
1: Joshua, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Claudia, for making the space. I appreciate it a lot.
0: Joshua Bennett's new book is Spoken Word, A Cultural History, and it's available now from Penguin. Coming right up, Miles Doyle and Molly Wilson O'Reilly talk about
3: Claire Hutchett Bishop. Molly, welcome to the Commonwealth Podcast.
4: Thanks. I'm always thrilled to be here.
3: We invited you to read a collection of Bishop's work. Before I discovered her in the Commonwealth Archives, I wasn't familiar with her or her work. Had you heard about her before this assignment?
4: Not really, no. I knew, of course, that Commonwealth had covered children's literature going back decades and decades, and that a lot of distinguished people had been on that beat over the years. But I didn't really know Claire Bishop specifically, so I was excited to have a chance to dig into her legacy. Can you tell us a
3: little bit about what you learned?
4: If you look her up online, you will find things that say that she was a Swiss writer because she was born in Switzerland in 1898. But it seems to me she was really more French. That was where she was raised. And she moved to America around 1930, I think, because she married an American, a concert pianist whose name was Frank Bishop. It seems that she lived most of her life here in America, although I think based on what she wrote for Commonwealth, it seems like she traveled back to Europe a lot. She worked for the New York Public Library. Her obituary in the New York Times says that she was the head of their children's reading room for a while. She wrote a lot of children's books and was, I think, pretty well known for that in her day. And of course, she wrote for Commonweal. She was an editor for children's books for a while, and she wrote as a kind of uh, European correspondent. Through, through the 40s and the 50s.
3: You mentioned that she was a librarian at the New York Public Library, and it seems like that's where, where she really got the idea to write children's books on her own. And when she emerged as a children's book writer in the 1930s, she initially drew inspiration from classic fables and folktales across different cultures. What do you think drew her to those fables and folklores?
4: She wrote a lot in Commonweal about the importance of storytelling and the importance of folklore and imaginative tales. She wrote a piece called The Ban on Imagination mm. in 1943, so so during the war, and she says at the beginning of it that she has heard that nursery schools created by the government to look after the children of defense workers, which is a really fascinating mm. milieu right there, that she has heard that in those schools they are not teaching fairy tales and imaginative stories. I guess realistic fiction and nonfiction is what they preferred to present children with. And so she wrote this piece as a defense of fairy tales and folk tales for children. And what she said was, folk tales are folk wisdom coming down to us. And that if you do not allow children to encounter that kind of storytelling, it robs them of their rightful heritage, that it cuts them off from that important source of wisdom. She said, a great deal is hidden in fanciful tales, meaning folk tales, fairy tales. Mm. And their excellence lies in the fact that you do not have to explain them to the child, just tell the story. It would be like planting a seed later in life. It will reveal itself in many an unexpected way. I think that she was drawn to stories that trusted the child to to do with it what they wanted to. There was another piece where she wrote about children should be allowed to have access to a lot of books and choose what they want to read because that's how they will find the thing that speaks most to them.
3: In an essay typical of her work in *Commonweal*, she wrote in a survey of children's literature published that year about the high cost of production and a certain mental weariness in post-World War II France, the popularity of pop-up books in Italy, and a deluge of books stateside about the history of America. She seemed to consider every facet of children's publishing, packaging, presentation, category, and content. What do you think her goal was as a critic of children's literature?
4: She must have just read exhaustively, She says in this piece that the piece that you mentioned, she went to France and she asked for what they had that was new, and that whoever it was she was talking to, someone at a bookstore, I guess, said one should not look for something new; it is enough to look for something good. (laughs) Um, And so I think she was focused especially on finding things that seemed good, that however one would define that, and bringing them to the attention of anyone who might be looking for literature for children. She seemed very dedicated to encouraging excellence in storytelling and in uh, illustrations as well.
3: She seems, definitely seems to be advocating or at least teaching young readers and adult readers how to engage subtext, right? And the kind of the cultural yes. context in which things were written.
4: Yeah, she felt that you know, adults shouldn't simply see books for children as something that amuses them or keeps them busy or teaches them to read or teaches them history, that it it. Books and reading has a role in developing their character and developing their sense of culture. And she thought that a sense of culture was so important for society and for an individual. And so, yes, I think she, she saw her writing in a place like Commonweal as trying to call adults who would be supplying books to children, whether parents or teachers or whatever they were, to take very seriously the responsibility of being in that role.
3: Later in her career, Bishop became an advocate for Christian-Jewish relations, answering the call of the Second Vatican Council for Catholics to correct a long history of overt and casual anti-Semitism in Catholic writing and Catholic books and culture.
4: She seemed to be very energized by the call of the Second Vatican Council to address the way that the Catholic Church had talked about and taught about the Jews and Jewish people and to... Focus on the need to do better. And she wrote in this piece, Learning Bigotry, which she published in Commonwealth in 1964, not just about why that was important or that that was important, but very specific suggestions as mm-hmm. to what publishers and readers could do to do better. She said correctly that the Second Vatican Council had identified the Christian tendency to lay the charge of deicide, that is, to blame Jews for the killing of Christ to lay that charge at the feet of the Jewish people as as heretical, as wrong, as contrary to church teaching and to say, we have to do better. And so she goes into children's books and traces the way that exists explicitly in some books, but she then talks about the more subtle ways that that, that comes up. And so she felt that especially writers for children had a real responsibility to pay attention to that. And I like the way she put it. She said, After nearly 2,000 years of warped, quote-unquote, Christian teaching, we have to bend backward to make truth straight.
3: That struck me as well. I do see in a lot of her work an honest attempt to reckon with trends that we're, or issues that we're still reckoning with today. Now, you and I are both parents. Which of Claire's books are you most interested in reading to your boys?
4: I see. I haven't read it yet, but she has a book called Martin de Porres, Hero that was published in 1954, so before he was canonized. But he was, of course, he was very popular then. So I'm interested in that. My oldest son's name is Martin. So he's an important saint in our life. So I think I would enjoy looking at that with them, especially because Jean Charlot illustrated that. And he also, mm-hmm. of course, did some work for Commonweal and was mentioned by her more than once as a, someone who was creating distinguished work in the realm of children's literature. So that's the one that I would seek out, I think, try to find an original edition of Martin
3: de Porres' Hero. Well, Molly, thank you so much.
4: Of course, it was a pleasure.
0: The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.